Take your Bible, if you haven't already, and find your place at Psalm 100. Psalm 100. And we begin a series of messages entitled, Thanks Living. Sometimes we restrict uh, giving thanks to Thanksgiving, to the week of Thanksgiving, or to the day of Thanksgiving. But the reality is that every day of our lives, 24-7, 365 days a year, there are opportunities, many opportunities for us to give thanks and we need to learn to live our lives in a manner that constantly is giving thanks. It's thanks living. Every day there are things that happen that we can give thanks for. I want us to read, if we will, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we turn our attention now to your word and to learning how to live our lives where we learn to say thank you. Thank you to others. Thank you to you to just be grateful for the many good things that you have given to us and even for the struggles and the trials that we go through in this life. Lord, I pray that you will cultivate within each of us and all of us a heart of thanksgiving. In your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 100 is a beautiful psalm, as you can tell from just our reading of it. But you probably have read it yourself on a number of other occasions. I know Mary and I, when we were teenagers, we memorized this psalm so that we could say it and repeat it and we could meditate on it until this day. Uh, we can quote this psalm uh, from memory. Uh, the psalm is such a beautiful psalm. The setting of the psalm is such a beautiful psalm. So as we begin today, let me just sort of give you some of the background to this psalm before we get to the content that I specifically want us to focus on for a little while. The author of this particular psalm, Psalm 100, is not known, nor do we know the exact timing of the writing of this psalm. But we do know this. We know that it had to be during the period when the temple existed before the temple was destroyed because they're entering into the gates and they're entering into the courts of the temple. So we have some general idea. We just don't know the specific moment or specific time when this psalm was written. It's interesting to note that this psalm is designated in its title as a psalm of thanksgiving. It is the only psalm that is titled this way. Obviously, there are other psalms where giving of thanks takes place, where praise uh, occurs. But the title of this psalm is unique, a psalm of thanksgiving. Something you might not know about this psalm, maybe you passed over it as we were reading it a moment ago, is that this is also known as a missionary psalm. And the reason is because he begins in verse 1 by saying, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. In other words, this wasn't just for Israel to come and to worship God and to give to him thanks. All the lands, all of the nations, and all of the peoples of the earth are being invited to be a part of this thanksgiving psalm, this thanks-living psalm. 
You'll want to note in your notes as you're thinking of taking notes, or if you are taking notes, that there are seven imperatives, seven commands that are given in this psalm. The first one, make a joyful shout. That's the first command. The second one, serve the Lord. The third, come before his presence. The fourth, know that the Lord, he is God. The fifth, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. The sixth, be thankful to him. And the seventh is bless his name. And so seven times he gives a command. In other words, giving thanks to God in this manner is not a choice we make. This is something that we rightfully should do. It is a matter of us obeying the Lord something that we ought to be doing. And one other thing about this psalm is that this is the capstone, if you will, of the enthronement psalms. If you go back just a few pages to to Psalm 93, I'll show you what I mean. Psalm 93, verse 1. He begins by saying, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. If you look over at Psalm 96, verse 10. He says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You get the idea? Psalm 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns. If you get to Psalm 99, verse 1, he says, the Lord reigns. I don't know what you take away from that, but I take away that the Lord reigns, right? They're they're all talking about the fact that he's the God of gods, that he's the Lord of lords, that he's the king of kings, that there is no other but him, and he reigns. And then comes this capstone, this pinnacle. Because he reigns and because he is who he is, we're to make a joyful shout and we're to serve him with gladness and we're to come before his presence and we're to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and we're to be thankful to him and we're, we're to bless his name. Why? Because he reigns because of who he is. He's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And when you read this psalm, there's a sort of a picture that's being drawn here. So let me just um, let, let me draw your attention to that picture. It's the picture of a group of pilgrim worshipers that are arriving at the outer gate of the temple. They're met there by one of the temple officials, and the worshipers turn their backs to the temple, and they face the nations, and they repeat the first three verses of this psalm. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. And they're inviting all of the nations to come. And then they turn and they face the temple and they enter into the gates of the temple and into the courtyards of the temple. And there they go, go forward with thanksgiving and praise and they're blessing repeatedly the name of their God. And that's the image that's drawn Because he reigns, because he is God of gods, because he is Lord of lords, we turn and we invite the nations as well as us to come and to worship him and to give him thanks. And so this whole psalm for us is a beginning to this series called Thanks Living because it's a reminder that the first person we should thank is the Lord himself. Now I want us to consider this psalm in in three ways. And so if you keep notes... You'll want to write down these three statements. I'll give all three of them to you at the beginning, and then I'll repeat them again. To live with thanksgiving, according to this psalm, to live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. To live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. Uh, to, To live, number two, with thanksgiving, we need emotions to express it. 
To live with thanksgiving, we need emotions to express it. And then number three, the last one that we'll consider, to live with thanksgiving, we need actions to demonstrate it. We need actions to demonstrate it. Now, let's just begin with that first one. To live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. In other words, this tower of praise that we want to build to God has got to be firmly established on a solid and secure foundation. And that solid and secure foundation is the truth about who God is and about the attributes of the one who is our God. For instance, three times in verses 1, 2, and 3, he's called the Lord. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. Serve the Lord. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. If you look in your Bible, they're all capital letters because it's a reminder that this is his name, Jehovah. This is his covenant-keeping name. But he's also identified to us not only as the Lord, but in verse 3, he is God. He's identified to us as God. It goes on in verse 3 that he is our creator. It is he who has made us. You did not evolve. No matter what your biology or science teacher told you, you did not evolve. God created you, created mankind in the beginning. He is the creator. He is, as well, the owner. He goes on to say, we are his people. He owns us. We belong to him. And then he is our shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. And so in those first three verses, we get, we get some of this truth about who he is. He's the Lord. He's God. He's creator. He's owner. He is the shepherd. But then when you get to verse 5, you pick up some of his attributes, not just who he is, but some of the things that distinguish him, not all of them, but some of the things that distinguish him. Uh, he is good, for instance. The Lord is good, he says. His mercy, there's the second one, is everlasting. His mercy is everlasting. And then he says his truth endures to all generations. His truth endures to all generations. So what you see here are three attributes of God. His mercy, uh, his, his goodness, and his truth that endures. Now, I want you to think about these three at the end here for just a few moments. And let's begin at the end, the last one, and we're going to work back. Let's start with his truth endures to all generation. What does that mean? His truth endures to all generation. That means that what he says is always going to be true. It's always been true, and it always will be true. Whatever he promises, God will always fulfill. His truth endures. You can bank on it. You can rest your life on it. You can rest in it because God is true. Uh, you probably, if you have a modern language translation, some of your translations say faithful. It would read something like this, and, and his faithfulness continues to all generations. Why faithfulness? Because when God's truth endures, when what God says endures, what he goes on and promises he always fulfills, that means God is being faithful. God is always faithful. We should rejoice in that foundational truth. We should rejoice in that foundational truth. We need truth to support thanksgiving. And here's one of those truths. God is faithful. Do you know why you can say with confidence, absolute confidence, that you are a child of God and you're going to heaven? Because God is faithful. Not because you're faithful. Not because I'm faithful. But because he is faithful. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his promises. I love the way he said this um, uh, in the New Testament. 
Paul writing to the young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he said this, if we are unfaithful, if we are unfaithful, listen, he, that is God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Aren't you thankful that it's not about you holding on to God, but it's about God holding on to you? It's not about how faithful you can be, but it's about how faithful that he is. And the psalmist says, when we come into the courts of the temple, when we come into the presence of the one who reigns, when we come to give thanks and to worship uh, the one who is exalted, we come with this foundation of knowing that his faithfulness continues to all generations. Every generation can bank on it. Every generation can depend on it. Every generation can know that he's true. Every generation can, can rest in his word that it is or it will be fulfilled as he said. But then we back up one step further. We move from his truth that endures to where he says his mercy is everlasting. His mercy. Think about his mercy. Here's another one of these truths about God that's a foundation to our thanksgiving. His mercy is everlasting. It's a Hebrew word. It comes from the back of your throat. Hesed. Hesed. You find it more than 300 times in the Old Testament. Um, sometimes you will find it translated in our Bibles as loving kindness. His loving kindness is everlasting. But when you think of mercy, that's a good translation of the word. God shows to us his everlasting mercy. Grace is God giving to us what we do not rightfully deserve. Mercy is God withholding from us what we rightfully deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve separation from God. But he withholds it from us in his mercy, and he extends to us his grace and gives to us something that we do not deserve when we trust his son the Lord Jesus Christ, his mercy is everlasting. Let me just give you an illustration of what, what this word means. In, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 20, there's a man that's found there by the name of Ben-Hadad. Actually, that's a title. It's like Herod or Pharaoh. There were many Herods and many different Pharaohs. There are different Ben-Hadads. It's a title. But Ben-Hadad was attacking Israel and he came against them on several occasions. He was trying to, to destroy them, to take them into captivity and to kill them if he possibly could. But every time he came, God intervened. It wasn't because of the greatness of Ahab the king. It was because God had determined to turn back the enemies against Israel. And every time they came, the, the armies of Ben-Hadad, he's the king of Syria, Every time they came against Israel, they were defeated, and some of their armies were, some of the army was destroyed and taken away. And now, after having repeatedly been defeated, Ben-Hadad knows that all that's left is for them to take his life. And so some of the remaining servants of Ben-Hadad come to him in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 31. This is what they say. Then his, that's Ben-Hadad's servants, said to him, look now. We have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. There's the word. Are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. He needed mercy. He was going to die without mercy. And in fact, he does receive mercy. 
That's what he's talking about here. When he says his truth endures to all generations, he's faithful. He goes on being faithful to what he promises and to what he says. You can bank on it. You can rest in it. When he says his mercy is everlasting, he means his loving kindness goes on forever. His mercy, he withholds from us those things that we rightfully deserve, and he gives to us what we don't rightfully deserve. He is merciful, and that's a truth on which we build this tower of praise that we give to God. But where I want us to spend our time is where it says in verse 5, for the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. For the next few minutes, that's where we're going to talk because I hear people all the time talking about the Lord is good. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Isn't God good? And I've noticed some things about how they say it that sometimes I wonder if we fully understand. When it says that God is, is faithful, uh, that his, his faithfulness continues to all generations, we understand that. When we understand mercy, we understand that his mercy is everlasting. Withholding from us what we rightfully deserve, God is merciful toward us, and it's everlasting. It goes on forever. But sometimes I'm not sure that we understand this foundational truth of what it means when we say that the Lord is good. So let's just stop and consider it for a few minutes. On my, my bookcase, on my shelves in my bookcases, I have an entire section of, of theolo theological uh, books, um, books of theology, systematic theology. If, if you're a preacher, you like to read those things. I know some of you are thinking, you, you need to sort of broaden out here, get a little, get a little more interesting reading. But really, you, you can't find anything more interesting than finding out about who God is. One of those books on, on my bookcase is, a, is a, a systematic theology by Dr. Wayne Grudem. He is a contemporary theologian of our day. He's the research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona. He's a graduate of Harvard with a bachelor's degree. He's a graduate of Westminster, Westminster Seminary with a Master of Divinity and a Doctor of Divinity. And he's a, he has a PhD from the University of Cambridge. So he, he's a smart guy. And he has this one volume, it's almost a thousand pages. It's one volume called The Introduction to Systematic Theology, and I was looking through it recently. And I came to a page where he talks about the goodness of God. So we're going to think, first of all, about the goodness of God from a theological perspective. This is how Dr. Grudem defines God's goodness. He says, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. God is the standard of good and everything that he does is worthy of approval because he is good. Now the question has to be asked, worthy of approval, worthy of whose approval? Because a lot of us seem to think that we can sit in judgment on the goodness of God. We seem to think that we can sit in judgment on God himself. So is this a matter of worthy of our approval or worthy of your approval or my approval? Dr. Grudem goes on and he answers that question. He says, we are not free to decide by ourselves what is worthy of approval and what is not. Ultimately, therefore, God's being and actions are perfectly worthy of his own approval. And so God is good in his, in his character, in who he is, and whatever God does is good, and that's not up for judgment for you to decide. If God says this is worthy, it is worthy whether we think it's worthy or not. 
In other words, in my own words, God's goodness doesn't mean we'll always agree with or like all that he does. He's not seeking our approval. God is acting in a way that is consistent with his own nature, with his, with his very attributes, and they are worthy of approval, but they're not worthy of our approval. They're worthy of his own approval. He approves of those things. Another way to say it is this. He knows more than I do and better than I do, and so that what he is doing is good. He knows more than I do and better than I do, so what he's doing is good. Why? Because it's worthy of his approval. He has chosen for it to, to occur. He has chosen to allow it to occur. And it comes from the one who is good. So that brings me to ask the question, if God's goodness means anything that is worthy of his approval, then what is good? What is good? Well, Grudem answers that question. Dr. Grudem answers that question. He says, God, excuse me, good is what God approves there is no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. So what is good? Whatever God says is good. Whether we say it's good or not, whether we like it or not, whether we think it's good or not, that's not up for our vote. It's worthy of approval, but not of us or from us. It's worthy of his own approval that it's consistent with who he is. It's consistent with his character. That bothers modern Americans because we think God should be subject to us. And that's not the way theology works. Everything that God approves is good, and good is whatever God approves. God's goodness isn't always what we think of as good from our human perspectives. And let's just face it, sometimes we see things and we think to ourselves, how could that be good? But the problem is, is that we interject our own limited understanding of the eternal as well as our own subjective opinions and emotions in the, into the equation. And when we do that, it skews our perspective of God's goodness. Instead of, instead of letting God be God, we're trying now to make God whom we want him to be, that he's doing what we think he ought to do. But God is good, and whatever God does... It is done because of his approval, and therefore it is good. Whether we understand it and we like it or not is not up for a vote for us. We can't see the whole picture. We can't see the beginning from the end. We can't understand all of the purposes of God. We're not sovereign over everything that's occurring. We don't know everything there is to know about the eternal. Only God can know those things. And so here's an important point of theology whether you study theology or not, here's an important point of theology. We have to remember that God's goodness starts and ends with himself and what he thinks. Not what I think, not what you think, but what he thinks. Grudem goes on and he says later, when we realize that God is the definition and source of all good, we will realize that God himself is the ultimate good that we seek. He is the source of all good because he is good, and whatever he approves is good. So let me put that into the context of somebody's life. Let me put that into the context of the man Job in the Old Testament, probably the oldest book of the Old Testament. We all know the story of Job pretty well, don't we? In a matter of a few moments, 
He lost 10 children to death. Think about that. I was watching the news this morning, and I saw where a man was sentenced. He crossed the center line. He hit a, a family head-on coming the other direction. It killed the father and his four daughters, and only his wife, the woman, the mother of the children, was left behind. And he got a month, he got a year's probation for killing those five people crossing the center line, distracted driving. He got a year's probation. That man could understand, or excuse me, that wife could understand, that mother could understand something of what Job must have felt on that day when the news arrived to him. All ten of your children are dead. But that's not the end of it. He lost his wealth. Everything that would have been considered by a man of that day as giving him status in society, in a moment it was all gone. And then to top it all off, he lost his health. And he finds himself sitting in these ashes with pieces of pottery scraping the wounds that are on his skin. This man is in a condition of misery. And then his wife, who has to be hurting with him for all that they've lost together, turns to him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And then if you've got friends like Job, you need some new friends. Because Job's friends show up. At first, it's okay. They sit there. They shut up. They don't say anything. But then they start on Job. They say, Job, it's your fault. It's your fault. You did something. God's getting you. God's getting you. God's getting you. It's something wrong. You've done something. God's getting you. And can you imagine how painful that must have been? But now, wait, wait a minute. God is good, and anything that he does is worthy, that is worthy of his approval, not your approval, that is worthy of his approval is good. So would you say that the loss of 10 children, the loss of your wealth, the loss of your health is good? Not by our standards, but by the standard of the Almighty God, absolutely it's good. And here's the thing. We have, as one commentator used to say, the rest of the story. We know what's going on behind the scenes in the eternal, in the story of Job, don't we? We know that he's being tested and God's going to prove him to be this righteous individual that everybody sees him to be. And we know the end of the story. The end of the story is that he's going to get back twice as much wealth and twice as much of, of these things that he's lost. He's going to have 10 more children. That means he's got 10 in heaven and he's got 10 that are living. I mean, God's going to reward him for his faithfulness even in the midst of the horror that he had to endure. You know, most of us would look at what Job was going through and we'd say, hmm, that's not good. That's because we're judging from the way we think and what we look at and, and how we see. We, we bring our own limited understanding. We bring our own limited understanding of the eternal and we bring our subjective opinions and emotions into the equation. And when we do that, it skews our perspective of God's goodness. Listen, God is good, period. And anything he does that meets his approval is good, whether we see it that way or not. It is good. Even in Job's life, what God was doing was good because God had a greater purpose for what was going on. Even though Job couldn't understand or know that purpose, God had a purpose and God had a reason. So God is good. Theologically speaking, God is good all the time, no matter what your circumstances may be. And we need to learn to say that. Not just when 
Life's turning up roses, but when life is hard, we need to learn to say, God is good. We say it with me? God is good. He's not asking for your approval. He's not asking for my approval. Whatever he approves is good, whether we think it's good or not. But let me move it from the theological to the practical, because that's more where we live most of our lives. Let me put it in the context where you and I live so that we can understand the goodness of God, because this is one of those foundational truths To live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. We need to understand his mercy. We need to understand his truth. We need to understand his goodness and what it means when it says God is good. So let's put it from the theological to the practical. In 2015, there was a Swedish men's soccer team that was booked on a German wings flight. But the flight was going to be delayed. It was going to mean they would get to where they needed to be too late, so they swapped planes. They went on a different plane. Later, the team would arrive at their destination, and they would learn that the plane that they were supposed to be on went down in the mountains and killed 150 people who were on board that plane. And almost inevitably, we hear stories like this, and when we hear stories like this, what do we say? We say, wow, God is good. Actually, we say that a lot, don't we? And almost every time when we say that God is good, it means that somebody in our estimation has inexplicably avoided some terrible tragedy or outcome. And because it meets with our approval of what we think is good, then we say, isn't God good? For instance, a woman has some car trouble and avoids a fatal 12-car pileup on the interstate where she would have been traveling if her car had started properly. And what do we say? Isn't God good? Or a man goes to his doctor for pneumonia, and the chest x-ray reveals a tumor in his lung, and it's, it's entirely removed, and he's cured because the doctor accidentally discovered it when it was still in its early stages. And what do we say? Isn't God good? Or a woman survives an aggressive form of breast cancer when the doctors hadn't given her much hope. And what do we say? Isn't God good? And my friends, let me just stop here and tell you that in all those circumstances, God is good. God is good. But here's the thing. Are you with me? Here's the thing. For all the stories of people who escape tragedy or some impending doom, There are just as many, if not more, who don't escape. Is God still good? God is good because of who he is. That is a part of his character. That is a part of it. That's one of his attributes. What he considers worthy, what he deems worthy is good, whether it seems good to us or not. He is good. But here's the thing. It's not just the good things that we consider, that we judge worthy of being marked as good. It's anything that comes from the hand of God that's good. So we have to think biblically about goodness, God's goodness. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, writing about God's goodness. He said, God is good not because he causes things that seem or feel good to happen in our lives, but because in the midst of the storm, God comes closer to us than the storm could ever be. 
So we move from the theological, where we know that God is always good, and anything he approves is good, even if we don't like what he's approved, to the practical, where we understand that whatever comes into our lives, if it's good, God is good. If it's hard and bad, God is still good. And in those moments, God comes to us in ways that he would not and did not come to us until we were in the middle of that storm. God comes to us and God helps us. No matter how bad our circumstances, no matter how much pain we experience, no matter how different the outcome may be than the one we wanted, God is still good. He's still good. Why? Why? Not theologically, but practically. Why? Because in the hardest moments of life, God comes close to us and he doesn't change, he doesn't falter, he doesn't quit, he doesn't leave, and he doesn't let go. God is good. Can we say that to you again? In the hardest moments of life, God comes close to us and he doesn't change. He doesn't falter, he doesn't quit, he doesn't leave, and he doesn't let go. God is good whether we judge what is going on to be good or not. If God approves it, it is good, period, because God is good. But in those moments, God is good because he comes to us and says, I will walk with you and I will help you in those moments. When you begin to understand God's goodness in that light, then you can say things like this. God is good, though 150 people died on that German wings flight, as well as when he spared the lives of the entire Swedish soccer team. God is good when people die in car crashes, as well as when people are kept from an accident. God is good when an infertile couple desperately wants a baby, as well as when couples are able to have their own biological children. God is good when a family loses their house through a fire as well as when people's, houses don't, uh, when people's houses don't burn down. God is good when a single person wants to get married as well as when other people are getting married. God is good when people lose their jobs as well as when some people are earning a job promotion. God is good when people die in a tsunami as well as when others are somehow rescued. God is always good. God is always good. Theologically, that is God's nature. That is his attribute. That is who he is. You don't get to vote on what he says is good. If he deems it to be good, it is good. Whether we like it or not, he gets to make that choice. But God is good practically because in those crises of our, li crises of our lives, he comes to us and he meets us and he's there with us and he will not leave us and he will not forsake us and he will not quit and he does not falter. He is there. He is there to help us because God is good. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? It's not just when things are rosy and good and happy and we get the good report that God is good. God is always good. It's been rightly said that the goodness of God is the unshakable foundation on which all faith and hope rest. It is the unshakable foundation. If you don't believe in a good God like that, then your life is up for happenstance. Your life is up for fate. 
I don't know if this is good or not. We don't know if it's going to turn out okay or not. We don't know if there's an eternal plan for this or not. We don't understand what's going on. We don't even like it. We, we want to vote God on whether this is good or not. But when you believe in the goodness of God as it's revealed to us in the Scripture, as the psalmist is talking about it, for the Lord is good. He is good. It's worthy of acceptance. It's worthy of approval. Not yours or mine, his own. Whatever he does with his approval is good. Even if to us it's difficult and it's hard, and in those moments when it's difficult and hard, he comes to us to be with us. But can we move from the theological and the practical to the spiritual for just a moment? Can I just speak to those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ? You want to talk about God's goodness? No matter what's going on in your life, and these will be on the app, in the notes section. You don't have to write them down right now. But listen to God's goodness from a spiritual perspective. We have an acceptance that can never be questioned. Ephesians 1.6, we are accepted in the beloved. We have an inheritance that can never be lost. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. We have a deliverance that can never be excelled. 2 Corinthians 1.10. We have a grace that can never be limited. 2 Corinthians 12.9. We have a hope that can never be disappointed. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. We have a bounty that can never be withdrawn. 1 Corinthians 3.21 and 23, 2.23. We have a joy that need never be diminished, John 15, 11. We have a nearness to God that can never be reversed, Ephesians 2, 13. We have a peace that can never be disturbed, John 14, 27. We have a righteousness that can never be tarnished, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And listen, we have a salvation that can never be canceled. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. Do you get what I'm saying? Theologically, God is good. He is the one who determines what is good. And if he approves of it, it is good, whether we approve of it or not. He is good practically because in those dark moments of our lives, he comes to us and he meets us and he helps us, not just in those happy moments. And he is good because he has bestowed upon us all of these, these incredible spiritual blessings, this multitude of spiritual blessings he has bestowed upon us. The goodness of God is one of those foundational truths on which you build this tower of praise. Yes, on his truth that endures to all generations, and yes, on his mercy that's everlasting, but on his goodness we build that tower of praise on that foundation of truth. To live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. But secondly, to live with thanksgiving, we need emotions to express it. We need emotions to express it. Have you ever had somebody say thank you and you wondered if they really meant it? You know, this, eh, thank you. Thanks. To live with thanksgiving, we need emotions to express it. I don't know if you notice in Psalm 100 all of the emotions in the psalm, but let me tell you what you don't find. You don't find cold ritualism. You don't find sterile ceremonialism. What you find is the depth of emotion that is touched by the reality that they have entered into the very presence of the Almighty God. 
Actually, what I'd tell you is this, that the, the, the worshipers aren't stirred up by the music. They aren't stirred up by what's going on on the platform. They are gripped by the divine presence of God. Are you gripped by the divine presence of God today? Maybe that's why your emotions aren't where they need to be. Maybe you know the truth that supports the praise that we ought to give to God, but the emotions are absent because you've turned into, your, your, your religion has turned into little more than ritualism and ceremonialism. You're not gripped with the divine presence of God. Now, I know inevitably there's somebody who says, well, I'm just not an emotional person. And I'm always interested when I see those people at a ball game. They come to church and they sit, uh, what, what, what we used to say, like a knot on the log. Do you know what that means? That's an old southern phrase. I don't know if they use it around here or not. Like a knot on the log. You know, you sit, you sit with your arms crossed and say, bless me, just try. <laughs> just bless me. There's no sense of the divine presence of the almighty God unless you whip it up, unless you stir it up. They haven't stopped to give thought to it. They haven't stopped to give consideration to it. And consequently, while they might know the truth that supports this praise that ought to be given to God, their emotions haven't been stirred by it. And God wants our emotions to be stirred. We receive truth first, then feelings of thanksgiving start to stir within us. That's why Jesus told a Samaritan woman, we worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, truth has to be there, but so must the spirit be there. That inner drive, that inner emotion, that inner enthusiasm. We are worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen to me, parents. I see the pictures of some of you that go to the ball games with your kids or to the dramas with your kids, and you're celebrating and you're excited and you're filled with thrill, and you should be. Did you bring them to church with you that way? Or did you get up and say, well, I guess we're going to have to go. Get it over with. Get that hour done. Salve our conscience and move on. Where is the depth of emotion where we're not just going through ritualism? We're not just going through ceremonialism. Where are the times today when we've celebrated celebrated with our spouses and celebrated with our children. This is the high day. This is the day when we gather together with the people of God. One writer says about this psalm that it's all ablaze with grateful adoration. All ablaze with grateful adoration. Do you see it? Make a joyful, what's the word? Shout. When's the last time you shouted? Serve the Lord with what? Listen to the emotion. Gladness. Oh, man, I can't wait to serve the Lord. I'm so happy to have the opportunity. Come before his presence with singing. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. Did you bless his name on the way to church today? Have you blessed his name since you've been here? Have you thought about saying amen and maybe you just weren't accustomed to doing so? Have you said praise the Lord? You understand what I'm saying? 
To live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. But to live with thanksgiving, we need emotions to express it. If we can go to the ball game and to the theater and get all excited, we ought to get all excited about gathering together and serving the Lord and praising his name and talking about him to others. We ought to be excited about it. Somebody has said the strong emotions of the Psalms make many modern people uncomfortable, which is ironic since our culture seems to feed on feelings. Some of you have never put your hands in the air. You've never lifted your hands in praise to God. But at the Marshall game, when they make a touchdown, everybody's, or the thunderclap. Right? Are you all with me? I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. I'm not denigrating those things. I'm saying, wait a minute. We're we're supposed to be giving thanks. This is thanks living. If we know these facts about who God is, it ought to stir our emotions within us so that we can never be dull and ceremonial about the things of God. We are always excited. I can remember when I was a teenager in high school, my mother wouldn't let me play football, and I'm, I'm glad she didn't. I had enough brain injuries as it was. I didn't need to get any more from helmets hitting mine. But I was in the band, and I can remember, you know, when you drive to the game, whether it was away or whether it was home, you'd get there, and there's a buzz in the crowd. There's always a buzz of excitement. You see the players out warming up, and there's an excitement. And then the cheerleaders all gather down on one end of the, of the football field and they hold up this big paper sign that celebrates their team and the mascot on their team. And then suddenly the announcer comes over uh, the, the announcing and he, he begins to talk about the team and he introduces the team and the team comes busting through the sign and everybody's yelling and everybody's cheering and everybody's on their feet, everybody's clapping. And then we come to church and we look like we came to a funeral parlor. Like we came sort of like death warmed over. We're the frozen chosen. Hmm. Our churches too often have become like Laodicea. We've got all the motions and all the activity, and we've got all the things perfectly programmed. But where was the Lord when it came to the church at Laodicea? He was outside looking into the service. Too often our churches are like that. It reminds me of a little boy who had gone to church one Sunday morning, and that night he kneeled down beside his bed, and he prayed. He said, Dear God, we had a good time at church today, but I sure wish you'd been there. I mean, folks, the Lord is here, right? We've come to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I understand some things that football games and baseball games are are more appropriate for that setting than this setting. But there ought to be some emotion and there ought to be some enthusiasm and there ought to be some excitement. If we understand the truth, we understand the truth. The fact is that thanks living will express itself through your emotions when they are properly directed to him. There's a little story I'll tell you about a little old lady who would go out every morning and she'd put her arms in the air and she would say it as loud as she could say it, praise the Lord. It went on every morning. Well, one day an atheist moved in to the house next door to her. And over time, he got irritated with this woman doing this every single morning. 
And he would walk out onto his porch after a while. And after she'd say, praise the Lord, he'd say to the top of his lungs, there is no Lord. The two went on like this for a number of weeks. Then one morning, the little old lady stepped out onto her front porch and she shouted, praise the Lord. Lord, I have no food and I'm starving. Please provide for me, oh Lord. The next morning, she stepped out onto her porch and there were two huge bags of groceries sitting there. And she lifted up her arms and she said, praise the Lord. He has provided groceries for me. Right then, the atheist jumped out from behind the hedges and he shouted, there is no Lord. I bought those groceries. The little old woman stopped for a moment. Then she threw up her hands and she said, praise the Lord. He has provided me with groceries and he made the devil pay for them. To live with thanksgiving, we need truth to support it. To live with thanksgiving, we need emotions to express it. And finally, and I can't develop this whole point, to live with thanksgiving, we need actions to demonstrate it. It's not enough just to know the truth and have your emotions stirred. There have got to be actions that go with it, actions to demonstrate it. You see what he says in verse 1? Serve the Lord. He says in verse 4, enter into his gates. At the last part of that verse, he says, be thankful and bless his name. In other words, as you're going into the temple, you bless his name and you give thanks. There have to be actions that demonstrate it. I hope that you're gathering here together with the people of God are actions that are demonstrating your thanks living. I hope that people when they get baptized understand that when you follow the Lord and believers baptism that's thanks living you're saying thank you God for saving my soul and taking my sins away and raising me to live a new life when you give in the offering you're saying thank you God for everything you've given to me and when you tell somebody else about Jesus you have actions that are demonstrating your thanksgiving not just enough to know the truth that supports it or have the emotions that express it. You need actions that can demonstrate it every single day of your life. Let me just close with this story. It's a true story, by the way. Told by a veteran missionary who served the Lord in India. He was giving his story at a church service one day. This is what he said. I was a medical missionary for many years in India. And I served in a region where there was progressive blindness. People were born with healthy vision, but there was something in that area that caused people to lose their sight as they matured. Well, this missionary, by the way, he's a medical missionary, developed a procedure to be able to treat the eyes of these people so that they could stop and arrest the progressive blindness when they found out about it, they were flocking to him. They were coming from everywhere. They all wanted this surgery. They all wanted this treatment to preserve their blindness. They didn't want to turn out like their parents and their grandparents who lost their sight. But here's what the missionary said. He said that though he had treated all of these hundreds of people with this treatment, that not a one of them ever said thank you. But wait a minute, not for the reason you're thinking. 
It was because they had no phrase in their language, their heart language, for thank you. The phrase in their language for thank you meant, I will tell your name. I will tell your name. So that these people would leave having had this procedure done and they would tell the name of the missionary. They would tell the name of the missionary and that was the way they showed their thanks. Can you think of a better way to demonstrate thanks living than to tell somebody his name today? To just tell somebody else what Jesus has done for you? To tell somebody else about how great your God is and how much you love him with all of your heart? Can you think of a better way? I want you to write down three things because here's your assignment. Here's your assignment. These next four weeks as we consider thanks living, here's your assignment for this week. We're going to read this psalm every day and we're going to meditate on its thanks living words. Just read it every day and stop and think about it. What does it mean, a joyful shout? What does it mean to serve the Lord? What does it mean to come before his presence with singing? What does it mean to know that the Lord, he is God? What does it mean to enter into his gates with thanksgiving? What does it mean that he's merciful? What does it mean that he's, uh, that he's uh, uh, faithful? What does it mean that he's good? What does it mean that he's omniscient? What does it mean that he's omnipresent, that he's immutable? One of his characteristics, immutability, means he doesn't ever change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What do these things mean? And you stop and you ponder them. Number two, I want you to focus on just one of God's attributes each day. And I want you to thank him for the ways it affects your life. You may choose one of these three that are here at the end of Psalm 100. You may talk about some of the others, but how does that attribute of God affect your life? Just think about his love. Let me take one harder than that. Just think about his omnipresence. You say, how would God's omnipresence Help me today. Well, it means that before you get to the office and you walk in that door and nobody's there but you and you wonder who's on the other side of that door, he's already there. You get it? You're going to think about his attributes. And you're, going to, you, you, you're going to thank him for the way it affects your life. And number three, you're going to tell someone about him. You're going to tell them how he changed your life by his grace. You're going to tell his name. You're going to tell his name. You're going to tell his name.